Today, we sit down with Dr. Anna Talmianovic Barube, an assistant professor in the Life Sciences and Integrated Sciences Department at McMaster University. In this podcast, she shares with us a little bit about her educational and career path, as well as the importance of the field of microbiology and genetics, including ethical considerations, innovation, and the interconnectedness of microbiology and genetics to the healthcare field as a whole. We also gain some insight on how students can keep up to date with scientific literature and prepare themselves for a career in healthcare. Hello, Dr. Anna Tomlianovich Barube. Could you please introduce yourself to our listeners and tell us a little bit about your career journey and how you've come to where you are today? Sure. So, as stated, my name is uh, Anna Tomlianovich Barube. I am currently an assistant professor with the School of Interdisciplinary Sciences at McMaster University. So, I am a teaching professor focusing mainly in teaching life sciences, but I also do teach in the integrated science program at McMaster. So, uh, as common with professors, I um, pursued graduate studies as part of my education. And so, uh, from what I understand in what we're chatting about today is kind of my career path and how I I got started. And as many students who pursue sciences, I first started off thinking I was going to be a physician. And so, I had the fortune, I guess, of... of, um, opting to take a co-op program in my undergraduate studies. Um, so I am a, a born and bred McMaster University uh, graduate. I, I, I went through school there and I kind of never left. <laughs> so I did my undergrad um, in the biochemistry and biomedical sciences department and I opted to pursue co-op and it was my first co-op placement that actually changed the direction in which my career took. So I was um, fortunate to have been placed in uh, a research laboratory with um, Dr. Eric Brown, and um, his lab studied bacteria, which was something that I had never even thought about before. I hadn't even taken a microbiology course, but I really liked what they were doing, and the research that was being conducted there was uh, relating to healthcare in that uh, they were using a model organism to to investigate microbiology and more specifically how we can tackle antibiotic resistance in bacteria which is uh, a big um, uh, an important aspect of healthcare so i basically got bitten by the research bug during uh, this third year co-op and it really changed the way that i approached my studies afterwards mainly because it made me realize that as I was sitting in some of my undergraduate courses that I had been taking for the purpose of applying to medical school, and I realized that I actually liked my biochemistry courses better than I liked my animal physiology course, for instance. No offense to anyone who studies that. And so it really got me thinking about where I wanted to be after I graduated. And my, my eight-month co-op turned into a thesis project, so I, I ended up spending 16 months uh, straight in uh, Dr. Brown's lab, and it really gave me a sense of what it is uh, to do research. So, so that really got me motivated, and then I, I still did actually apply to medical school, but in the end, it didn't feel like a good fit for me, and so I opted to pursue graduate school instead. And so 
when I was trying to decide what I was going to study, as many undergraduate students do, uh, many times it's just kind of happenstance. You, you take a course and you run into a topic that you think, hey, that's really cool. I want to learn more about it. In other cases, you might know right from the beginning that this is, you know, I want to study cancer or I want to study, you know, muscles or something along those lines. And that helps you make that decision. In my case, it was that experience in the lab and uh, more importantly, hearing the researchers who came to visit uh, for guest lectures through that uh, co-op experience. And so I had decided that I wanted to study something still relating to medicine that was still relevant, and that was um, looking at infectious diseases. And so when I was opting for graduate studies, that's what I was looking for. And I had the fortune again of, so originally my plan was to leave McMaster, you know, uh, experience different things. And then I interviewed with a young professor who was just starting at McMaster, Dr. Brian Coombs, and he changed my mind. So I, I opted to stay uh, because of the nature of his research. And so uh, for my PhD, I studied uh, an organism, Salmonella typhimurium, which causes food poisoning. And I specifically was looking at how bacteria, in particular this foodborne pathogen, uh, regulates its genes when it's inside the host environment. So the research that comes out of Dr. Coombs' lab focuses on that interplay between the host, such as ourselves, and the bacteria, and, and how they communicate with each other, uh, what are the triggers that stimulate infection, and, and even more you know, fundamental questions such as what makes a pathogen a pathogen? So we studied things like bacterial evolution, um, which is pretty, pretty interesting to, to spend a number of years working on. You know, just like any, anyone who pursues graduate studies, you have to start making decisions at some point about what you're going to do afterwards. And I had, even though I absolutely love research, I love bench work, I realized that I did not have a future in, in pure research, that my passion was more about interacting with others and communicating science to others. Um, and so I started through, I also had some excellent TA experiences, and it was through that experience that I realized that perhaps education was where my career was leading. And so as a as I was going through graduate studies, that's where I started turning my focus. So I was involved in several opportunities on campus that allowed me to interact with other uh, educators. And then uh, after graduate school, I had applied to a number of teaching positions and fortunately started teaching right after I defended my PhD and I haven't looked back. So since then, I have been actively teaching at McMaster uh, with my most recent appointment being in the School of Interdisciplinary Science. Thank you so much for sharing your journey. I think you bring up a very important point about gaining exposure and experience and how that can lead you in the right direction for oneself. And Your journey started from becoming exposed to the research that you were involved in in your graduate studies and then um, TAing. So that's definitely very interesting to hear and probably very helpful for students who are trying to figure out what to do as well. Thank you.
So moving on to our next section on microbiology and genetics. The healthcare system has so many moving parts and all of which are very important and contribute to effective patient care, just as you said. So two of these moving parts include microbiology and genetics. Would you be able to speak on the role of or the importance of microbiologists and geneticists within the healthcare system and why it's important for prospective healthcare students to familiarize themselves with the work of these professionals? Well, I think this interview is quite timely given the, the current, I guess, global environment that we're in due to uh, COVID-19. So in, at no other time in, perhaps in history has our reliance on the knowledge of virology and genetics been more important. And that's mainly because the technology that we human beings have developed in recent time, so we're talking in the last 30 years or so has allowed us to be able to do things that we would have never been able to do before with previous uh, outbreaks or pandemics. And that's being able to directly track the evolution of a pathogen through its genes. So what we see with COVID-19, for instance, is this rapid development of testing strategies, although maybe in general, you know, the, the general public might not understand why it's taken, you know, some time to develop these, these testing strategies. But, but it, historically speaking, I mean, we're working at um, lightning speed here. So no time more than ever has, uh, has it shown that, you know, genetics is a vastly important aspect of our, of our medical system. And it's something that will be standard care probably moving forward, especially with respect to screening strategies for infectious diseases. So what we see with respect to microbiology, I mean, we human beings have been plagued, and pardon the pun, with infectious diseases since, since day one. For most of history, we have not had any tools to arm ourselves against it. It was pretty much you know, if you get tuberculosis, you ride it out, you live with it until you die. Many, similar with many other diseases. With the advent of antibiotics and other treatment strategies, in particular vaccination, uh, we have changed, we have turned infectious diseases on its head, but that doesn't mean in any means that we have beaten pathogens. And so, so what we can really do in, in medicine is to arm ourselves with with tools, and, and this is where genetics and technology comes in. So, I mean, genetics plays a very significant role in the way we evaluate disease now. So for instance, someone gets diagnosed with cancer, and one of the first things that's done now is their cancer is biopsied and a genetic test is done. And that's to see what has changed in the genome of the individual of those cells to try and assess and evaluate the type of cancer it is and evaluate perhaps how aggressive it might be, how it might behave compared to what we know about similar mutations. And, and this will directly impact how we treat that person for their cancer. For microbiology, we use genetic screening to evaluate on a basic level what the pathogen might be or what the organism might be, because this can give us information as to what drug specifically we should be using. It can also give us information about how dangerous the organism is. We have a very large problem with antimicrobial resistance in our hospitals and, and really worldwide. It is a, it is a very scary and very serious problem that we are facing. 
And so if we arm ourselves with knowledge of genetics and being able to rapidly sequence isolates that have been taken from, say, a hospital setting or from an outbreak setting, we can quickly determine which antibiotics will or will not be effective against that organism. So for anyone entering into a healthcare field, I think microbiology is very important because it will, it will drive what we, how we tackle infectious disease treatment in the future. And genetics is vitally important as well because uh, realistically, the way that we diagnose disease, the way that we approach disease will all be influenced by our understanding of genetics fundamentally. The one other thing that I wanted to mention is that microbiology has kind of had this renaissance in the last 15, 20 years or so, and that's largely due to our eyes being opened wide open uh, to the fact that microbes actually play a very significant role in our health and well-being. Not, not so much relating to pathogenesis, which is what we've always focused on. We've always focused on the bad, but there is so much that we still need to learn about um, the good bacteria, the good viruses, the good fungi that live and share our space within our bodies, within our environment. And so we're just starting to really scratch the surface by doing these extensive um, sequencing projects such as the human genome, uh, sorry, uh, the human microbiome project uh, to really start to gain an understanding of that interplay and how our uh, microbiota, for instance, influences our health and well-being. And so medicine, I think, is going to be moving in that direction and will be evaluating what that interplay is and how we can co-opt it and take advantage of it to, to improve our wellness. Thank you so much for sharing all that information. So along with many of your other roles, you also have a little bit of experience on ethics and uh, microbiology and genetics. And so recently we actually had a very educationally enriching experience listening to you as a guest speaker for our bioethics class where you discuss the ethics regarding gene editing. Uh, would you be able to speak a little bit about this so that our listeners can also gain some insight? Certainly. Um, maybe I'll give a little bit of uh, context because even though my background is sort of microbial genetics, I had the opportunity while I was teaching in the School of Engineering Practice and Technology at McMaster to teach a course called Biotechnology Regulations for a number of years. And so that course revolves around the bioethics involved in technology. And so, I mean, these are really hot button topics. Uh, this in particular, looking at, you know, how we can co-opt and take advantage of technology, but use it in an ethical way is something that we really need to be thinking about, particularly when it comes to genetics and genetic screening. Perhaps not so much for, you know, microorganisms that we can't see, but certainly when it comes to human genetics. And so my experience in, in teaching that course and interacting with professionals who engage in bioethics and in basic research involving humans has kind of led to some interest with respect to, with respect to the ethics involved in, in pursuing gene editing, particularly when it comes to, to human beings. So the guest lecture that you were speaking of, um, I was specifically talking about humline, human germline gene editing. And that's the concept of being able to take a human embryo or let's say a sperm cell or an egg cell from a human being and alter its gene or genes uh, for the purpose of, of 
procreation in the end. So perhaps you have an individual who knows that they carry a genetic disorder and they want to avoid that when they have children. We are in a very fascinating, scary, and unique time in history in that we are now at the point where we actually have technology that would allow us to change someone's genes prior to even conception and essentially wipe out a genetic mutation out of their, their own genome and for any offspring that they have in the future. So this, this is something that is a big question when it comes to ethics, because we have many questions in general as human beings when it comes to what we can and cannot do with the human body, what we can and cannot do uh, in medicine. And so there is, a, there is a lot of concern and a lot of consideration when it comes to how to proceed now that we have this powerful technology in our hands. So with respect to genetics, I mean, we've, and microbiology, we have been manipulating microbial genetics for years and years and years. But even when the technology first came to be available, there was actually a moratorium or a full sort of call to stop on any technology or, or, or on any pursuit of genetic engineering because we just didn't know what the repercussions were going to be uh, at that time, how significant of an impact it might be. The idea of, let's say, taking a microorganism, manipulating its genetics, and then it accidentally being released into the world, this is a very scary concept. And at the time, due to the technology and where it was, we couldn't really know what it meant. But through careful research and ex experimentation, it was determined that at least on, at the microbial level, um, it was okay for us to pursue sort of genetic manipulation of microbes and that we could, we could regulate that fairly effectively. But it, the, the game changes a lot when you start looking at changing genetics of higher order organisms. Um, and so, you know, we have used, for instance, animal models to study uh, diseases in which case we've had to manipulate genetics in order to create those models. And, and so this was always very challenging and difficult in the past due to limitations in technology, but now with the advent of technology such as CRISPR, this allows us to make genetic changes fairly easily in a basic laboratory and then see what the phenotype or what the effects of a genetic change will be in that organism. So we've already been doing this in, in animal models, but now we're at the point where we can actually do this in human beings. And, and last year, this actually came to fruition, not because of someone who uh, received permission to do so or anything like that, but a scientist in China actually went ahead and did this. They manipulated the, a gene within an embryo and then implanted that embryo into a mother and um, that person or several individuals are now alive and breathing with this humanly manipulated genetic uh, change. So, uh, so there are many ethical uh, repercussions and considerations that we have to make when it comes to this technology and, and what we can and cannot do with it. And it, it calls into question many fundamental aspects of humanity. I mean, it, it makes us question things like, what does it mean to be human? 
if, if someone has had their gene edited by in a laboratory somewhere, does that mean that they are still what we consider to be a human being or does that make them something different? Uh, some might refer to it as playing God, where basically we are taking what would normally happen uh, naturally within, you know, uh, gametogenesis, for instance, or the, the generation of sperm and egg, and putting our hands in there and actually manipulating it purposefully. So, I mean, there's lots of questions, so many questions, and we could probably spend hours talking about the bioethical implications of a gene editing technology. But we have, we have to be very careful about how we approach uh, using this technology and applying the technology. And society and, you know, nationally, internationally, there have to be these conversations and very deliberate decisions uh, to be made when it comes to what we can and cannot do. So for instance, here in Canada, we do have very specific guidelines about what we can and cannot, what kind of research we can and cannot do on human beings, on human tissues, and it draws a line and it prevents us from actually going the full distance that we could go with a technology like this. But there will certainly be questions in the future about how far do we draw that line? Where do we go? Is it acceptable for us to make a genetic change if it's going to prevent a genetic disorder that is absolutely devastating? For individuals, for instance, who might have something like cystic fibrosis or or Duchenne mus muscular dystrophy, uh, that could be a game changer for, for their families uh, because they would not be passing on a genetic disorder. Uh, but, but then also you have other considerations when it comes to individuals' rights and disability rights. And the thing that we're learning about with the advent of genome sequencing and genome editing technologies is that there are so much that we do not know and understand about our own genetics. We have only really scratched the surface when it comes to what we truly do know about how our genes work and what they, they do in our bodies and in our cells. Um, and so what might be seen, what's seen as a deleterious or, or bad mutation, so to speak, may actually just be a stepping stone in, an, in our evolutionary path that, that will ultimately be for the betterment of humanity. And so we have to be very careful about how we approach all of this. I don't know if I answered that question, but that's, that's kind of the, the big picture thinking when it comes to this type of technology and, and what, we, what we need to be thinking about as scientists and in society. I think you definitely answered the question. It's just most definitely a very, very complex topic. And you're right, as the discussion continues and as technology increases even further, it'll be interesting to see where exactly we go with this technology and how far we go with it. But yes, absolutely. There's just so many considerations to take. Uh, okay, so also given your uh, knowledge of the interdisciplinary sciences and then biotechnology regulations, when considering ethical issues that may arise in topics such as genetics or microbiology, as you were discussing, what are the different subfields that may be involved in reaching a solution? Uh, so for instance, if you could speak a little bit on the different roles that may be involved in handling these ethical cases. Well, I think um, I might have touched on it a little bit already in that basically we all have a responsibility at, on some level. With, certainly within healthcare, questions of bioethics and how to proceed in medicine have always been driven by uh, these 
these quandaries, these, these, these really important questions about what we should and should not do, how we should handle things, who should and shouldn't be treated a certain way, etc. So I think with respect to ethical issues, it arises pretty much at every level. It arises um, sort of in the general population level with respect to politics in terms of what types of initiatives we would support or not support. It falls into medicine in terms of physicians, in terms of clinicians, with respect to how patients are treated, what, what, what kind of access they, patients should get to care. So for instance, I, I don't want to say a great example, but an important example of these types of fundamental quandaries arose through COVID-19. So what we saw, for instance, in Italy during the early part of the outbreak was a healthcare system that was overwhelmed with uh, COVID-19 patients um, and physicians basically being forced to draw up guidelines to make sort of direct decisions about who should and should not be receiving care, or at least with respect to prioritizing care when resources are limited, when personal protective equipment is limited, when ventilators are limited. And so there was a large discussion and an ongoing discussion still about how do we ethically make those decisions? How, how does one walk into a room, see two patients who are both suffering from the same illness, but with only access to one piece of equipment that may save their lives? How do you decide who is going to get it and who's not? So this is, this is something that is very, very important right now as we face uh, COVID-19 and this pandemic globally. Uh, but these are conversations that that medicine, anyone involved in medicine and healthcare has been asking for hundreds of years in terms of how do we, how do we best treat uh, individuals and treat them in a way that is fair and ethical. When it comes to administration, this is where you have sort of overarching people who are deciding these types of, making these types of decisions in terms of how much access do we have to beds, how much access do we have to uh, to equipment, what are the policies and procedures that dictate how clinician may have to act in a given scenario? And so that's what we were seeing in Italy and in other places where the, the spread of the pandemic became unmanageable. But certainly, too, uh, scientists have a very significant role to play in ethics as well. As I mentioned, we have guidelines here in Canada that dictate what we can and cannot do with human, human data, human tissues, human beings. But we also have a responsibility to uphold the, the expectations that, that and, and sort of the, the understanding of, of what is and isn't okay to, to conduct with respect to research, not only with human beings, but with animal uh, research as well. So, you know, any, any type of fundamental research that involves manipulation of an organism, uh, particularly organisms that, that can be used as model organisms, that has ethical oversight. And so really overall, it's important for anyone who's involved in any aspect of science really to be um, knowledgeable of ethical considerations and, and to be well, well familiar with the quandaries and the, the policies that are currently in place and how to 
how to uh, maintain them moving forward as the world is changing and and the the bioethical concerns that we have may be changing. I think that this discussion very well kind of highlighted all the connections that are in the healthcare system and how there are so many different moving parts, as we said before, but that many topics or many subfields within the healthcare system are, are just so interconnected. Yes, definitely. I mean, a lot of times we, we tend to sort of paint careers into boxes, you know, when you're in high school or when even in elementary school, when someone asks you, what do you want to be when you grow up? You know, people tend to identify very specific, really most jobs, but, but particularly anyone in the healthcare field, um, is that there is so much interdisciplinary work. There are so many different people that you may interact with on a daily basis that all have different backgrounds, different knowledge, but they all bring something to the table. Let's say you take a child who has an illness. Uh, that child may interact with a physician, but they may also interact with a child life specialist. They may interact with a physiotherapist, an occupational therapist, a behavioral therapist. These are all vital players within the healthcare field, but they are not all one box and they all bring something to the table and they all can provide perspective on treating an individual. So I think it's important for, for anyone thinking about a career in healthcare to remember that, you know, it's, you, it's not just the only choice is not just becoming a doctor. There are so many other things. There are so many other ways that uh, an individual can contribute to healthcare. Absolutely. So on to our next question. In your professional opinion, what are some current topics that students could be learning about in the context of biotechnologies and microbiology? Well, there's lots. <laughs> uh, when I was thinking uh, about this, I, I mean, the first thing that came to mind that I feel is really important for us to, to be thinking about moving forward is our developing an understanding of the role that microbes play in health and wellness. So, I mean, we're really lucky, as I mentioned, we, we live in an era where we have this technology that allows us to take an organism we've never seen before, and let's say if it's a microbe, and sequence its genome within a day. And after, you know, an eight hour run in sequencing device, we have everything we need to know about its genetics. Does it mean that we understand everything? No, but it means that we can now take that genome and compare it to all the other genomes that we have available to us and start teasing out what this organism can do. And we don't even have to have actually isolated the organism. In the past, what would happen is we would have to do you know, traditional microbiology where we would take a sample from an environment, Put it on a petri dish, try growing it in a number of different media to see if we can actually stimulate propagation or growth. And then only once it was growing would we be able to do anything with it. And now we're in a position where we can take a sample, let's say a fecal sample or an oral swab, and uh, put it in a uh, in solution and uh, put it in a sequencer and get some information out of it. So uh, it, this allows us to really take the concept of making the invisible visible in that, in that respect. And I think this is where medicine is moving forward. I think, uh, especially with the, 
pursuit of our understanding of the human microbiome, we really are starting to try and tease out these relationships between microbes and our bodies, what they do, um, how they help us, how they can hinder us. Um, and so there's so much we still need to learn about that interplay. And I think as we develop treatment solutions for individuals with a wide variety of disorders and conditions, I think this is where, where this is all going next. I mean, certainly in recent years, there have been many publications that have demonstrated or at least have implied a relationship between our microbiome and a particular disorder or phenomenon. So it ranges as widely as neurological disorders to physiological disorders uh, to sort of the more obvious gut disorders. Um, but, it, but it runs the gamut. I mean, bacteria have a role in how we process drugs in our body. They have a role in regulating our emotions on some level, in, in um, how we process our diet. There are so many things that, um, that the bacteria and viruses and fungi in our bodies do that we still don't really understand and know yet. So I think if students really want to be thinking about current topics, I think it'd be a really great to, to start looking into the human microbiome and what we've been learning. And not only the human microbiome, but environmental microbiomes as well, and viromes, and all aspects of sort of this holistic view of everything that's in our physiological ecosystem, so to speak. I think, too, that it's really important for, for any student of science to be aware of the technology that allows us to, to investigate these questions. So as I mentioned, I mean, that we've had a huge boon in genome sequencing technology, and we are in a place right now we have never been in before where we can, as I mentioned, sequence a genome of an organism within a day, uh, within hours, uh, depending on what it is. Um, we can sequence a human genome in, you know, a day or a week. And so now we're starting to collect all of this data and trying to glean information from it. Uh, so I think it's important to familiarize yourself with how these technologies work and what they, what they can actually tell us. The other thing that I always say to students is if you have an opportunity, learn about bioinformatics. Um, so that's, the, that's how we process biological data, large biological data sets. I myself, my, my PhD project begrudgingly was involved, had a, had a large bioinformatics component as I was looking at whole genome effects. And, and I regret that I didn't have more uh, knowledge about that. If I could go back, I would take a bioinformatics course just so that I would have an understanding of the coding involved and how, how we process this data effectively because there is a gap between individuals who know how to use the technology or at least do the programming to, to, start to investigate the technology and individuals who actually understand what that data means. So we have lots of computer scientists who know how to do the computing, but not necessarily the biological knowledge of understanding and interpreting what it means uh, with the output of that data. So I think these are all really important ways that um, students who are interested in, in biotechnology or medicine can kind of start looking into topics uh, because they will be relevant in the future. Certainly what you will likely see is more and more on-site sequencing technology in, um, in certain departments, for instance. So you know, if you need to go to a genetic counselor, they may have sequencing 
technology on site. If you go to the emergency room with an infection, you may have a sequencer on site that actually sequences the swab that they took from your throat to determine whether or not you have strep throat. So these are all things that we need to be thinking about and I think these are all really great things to investigate as a student while, uh, while you're still learning about these fields. Mm -hmm. So as you mentioned, there's just so many topics um, within the context of biotechnologies and microbiology and you very well did cover a few of those topics, but do you have any advice for students um, in terms of keeping up to date with a growing repository of knowledge, including scientific findings and publications? So what are some of the ways in which um, students can explore the literature? Um, is there a systematic way to do this and I guess do you, do you have any tips for us? Yeah definitely so um, so when I was when I first got started in in the lab one of the really great tips that someone gave me was to sign up for electronic table of contents for journals of interest so um, so uh, so speaking to any university student, yeah, maybe I'll backtrack for a second here. So any university student who has access to a library, to a university library, uh, automatically has access to the vast array of uh, publications that the library subscribes to. And they're available to students for free, or at least as part of the tuition that they're paying for. What this means is that journals that normally have um, prohibitive costs um, are, are available, are readily available to students to be able to openly access. And because everything is now online, so long as you are either on campus or at least in now current days context, have a VPN that is open, uh, or at least user ID, so for instance at McMaster, your Mac ID, you can log in through the library and access pretty much any journal uh, that you, that the university subscribes to. So this really opens a lot of doors because um, if you are from the general public, you may not have access to this type of literature. Reading scientific journal articles can be daunting. It can be difficult, especially if you don't necessarily have a full background on a particular topic. But one really great way of kind of getting your feet wet, so to speak, is to subscribe to publications that provide summaries of research findings and, and, and that are just reporting on what's currently happening from week to week. So for instance, you can go onto Nature or Science or Cell or any other high impact journal or and uh, you can do a subscription to their table of contents. And what this does is this, you get a weekly or monthly, however often the periodical comes out, email that basically tells you what the table of contents for the journal is. And if you have access to the journal itself through your school library, you can click, just simply click on it onto any uh, article or topic that you're interested in and read more. So it's a really easy way of scanning what's currently happening in any particular field, depending on what you're interested in. So that's one really great way. The other way that I would recommend students to, to get involved and to, if they wanna learn more about a topic is to find out what's actually happening at your own institution and engage in the openly free um, lectures and seminars that are available from the researchers who are literally at it um, at that institution. So one of the best ways and one of the most exciting things that I got to, in, 
to be involved in as an undergraduate researcher, I was able to attend my department's weekly seminar. And so by doing that, I got to see what all of the grad students were working on, what all of the researchers in that department were working on um, in a passive way, just simply going to essentially a lecture and hearing about what these um, fantastic researchers are doing. So at institutions where there is active research being uh, conducted, this is a really great way of just absorbing information and learning about fields that you are either fascinated with or might have some interest in um, that is low stakes because you don't necessarily have to directly involve yourself you can just sit there as an audience member and learn so these are these are the ways that i encourage students to to find out what's happening in the world and find out what's happening at your own institution at mcmaster we're really fortunate we are the most research intensive university uh, in canada and so we have so many amazing opportunities to learn about cutting edge research and cutting edge technology by just walking down the hall and popping into a lecture. That was really great advice. And the electronic table of contents seminar attendance is definitely something that I think students would benefit from. Um, I, I myself didn't know about electronic table of contents and I'm, and I'm in my fourth year. I, I just finished my fourth year. So it, it's good to know this for sure. Yeah. And I mean, even even students who don't necessarily have access anymore, they can they can still do this. I mean, or you can engage in other ways. So, I mean, there are many other publications, something like Scientific American, uh, where you can find out at least what's being covered and, and, and get summaries. And many of these websites, too, do provide sort of free republications on certain parts. And so this is one way that it's just simply, you know, just like you might get an update from your favorite clothing retailer, you can get an update in your email from what's happening in the world of science that week. Thank you. Yeah, that's, that's great advice. So if you could offer your younger self any advice for when preparing for a healthcare related field, what would it be? I feel very fortunate that I thought uh, carefully about what I wanted to do. So one thing that I do observe amongst my students when it comes to planning their future careers beyond their undergraduate education is there is a lot of pressure. There's a lot of external pressure and a lot of internal pressure on themselves to perform, to succeed, to be the best that they can be in order to achieve that you know, career goal. And I think a lot of times we tend to lose sight of what, what we really want out of it. So sometimes, so in my case, for instance, I always thought I was going to go into a career of medicine. But, but when I really was forced to really think about it, and when I, when I sort of opened my eyes up to different possibilities, I realized that perhaps the reasons that I was looking towards that particular career path were not because it was truly something that I wanted to do, but rather what other people in my life may have wanted me to do. And, and expectations as well. I mean, I, I lived in a close-knit community where I would walk down the street or I would run into someone I know and they would automatically make a comment about my future in medicine, um, which can be very, very stressful and intimidating. And so the one thing that I'm really happy that I did was that I forced myself to really sit down and evaluate what a career such as medicine or what a career 
such as what I ended up pursuing, what actually that means to me and whether it is truly something that I want. The other thing that I really encourage students to do and uh, or that I would encourage anyone to do really when they're trying to decide sort of what their future path is, is to look at the big picture. Think about what they want, not only for their professional career, but for their personal career as well, because any, any career that involves a lot of education requires some sacrifice. And so, so this is something that you wanna be going into with eyes wide open. You wanna be thinking about you know, whether or not uh, the, the commitment that you're making to your education path is going to, to alter your own personal goals as well. Um, and so I think that that's really important. So I guess the bottom line, the advice that I would give is to, to do some soul searching and really make sure that what you're aiming towards is what you truly are passionate about, that you really can see yourself enjoying and loving because it's um, going down, going into any healthcare field, whether it be through research or whether it be through um, clinical practice or whether it be through some other um, avenue can be, it's, it's an uphill battle. It is challenging. Um, it really tries your stamina. And so you want to make sure that you're going to be happy doing that uh, and that it is all going to be worth it for you in the end. The one last thing that I would say to students is, and this is one thing that I regret not doing myself, I was always a very motivated student, a very um, driven student. And um, what I didn't do was take time for myself and to really unplug sometimes. <laughs> Fortunately, I had a, a life partner who kind of forced that into me. And so it was a great way to kind of remind myself that there are other things beyond uh, my courses, beyond my degree that, uh, that are important as well. But, but the one thing that I wish I had done in my youth, I guess, is had taken more time to, to smell the roses, so to speak, and, and to really not only pursue education and learning, which I also love, but also to pursue other interests that make me a more whole and rounded person. Wow, that was very, very insightful. Very good advice, for sure. So that, that concludes our interview for today. I know I learned a lot and I'm more than confident that the listeners who tune into this will also gain a lot from this. I mean, there was the scientific aspect where you spoke on um, discoveries and the current research that's taking place, but then also from a personal standpoint, I think students will be able to really reflect after listening to this. And so thank you so much for giving us your time and for speaking with us. You're welcome. It was my pleasure.